from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. So here now, this is indeed God's holy word. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing this aspect of your dealings with mankind that you would give favor to the humble, but you would oppose the proud. And so, Father, as we no doubt come before you with some pride hidden in our hearts or not so hidden, we pray that your word would be like a hammer and break the pride to pieces, that we might be tender-hearted before you, that we might be humble before you. Would you give us a glimpse of your majesty and your might, that we might know our place and that we might praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a 19th century physics professor from Johns Hopkins University by the name of Henry Augustus Rowland, a physics professor who was known by his friends and colleagues as being a generally modest man, and he was called to be a witness in a trial. And during the cross-examination, the lawyer pressed him sharply to say, what are your qualifications that would uh, enable you to become an expert witness in this trial? And the characteristically modest man said quietly, I am the greatest living expert on the subject under discussion. And shortly after, one of his friends who heard about this exchange questioned him. He was surprised by his response, and and, uh, Roland said to him, well, what did you expect? I was under oath. I had to tell the truth. And friends, uh, humility, as we approach this topic of humility, humility is an essential quality in the life of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one because it has been said that humility is something that we must constantly pray to God that he would give us, but never give him thanks that we have received it. Uh, Because even the, the acknowledgement that we are humble, there is an aspect of pride in it. But I think we could pinpoint humility as perhaps the singular most important aspect of the Christian life, a defining characteristic of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, At the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus, uh, in his farewell prayer, said, he said this, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life. But there's a necessary response to true knowledge of the one true and living God and Jesus Christ. And that is a response of humility before his majesty and glory and holiness and power. And that humility will work itself out in the character of a believer before God and before one another. And when we come to this 
passage here in Proverbs chapter 3, it's like the Lord draws a line in the sand and he says, there are two categories of people. There are those who are humble and there are those who are not. And he makes clear how he responds to such people, to the, those who oppose him in pride, he opposes. And those who are humble before him, he favors. And so as we look at this, that's what we need to see is that the Lord delights to give his favor to those who are humble before him. The Lord delights in it. So uh, again, a very simple proverb of two comparisons, two groups of people with two different responses. He says, toward the scorners, he is scornful. That's how it starts. And kids, a scorner, uh, you may not know this word, to scorn. Uh, another way of thinking about it is a mocker. Uh, this is somebody who makes fun of another person or a, a line of thinking uh, in order to tear them down. Someone who laughs and holds them in derision. And that, that is, what are you, a dummy? That is the stupidest thing that I ever heard. How could you possibly believe that? They're, they're scorning the idea. They're scorning the person. And... Uh, that's where the proverb begins. He says, to the scorners, he is scornful. These, these scorners, you might remember we, we talked about how in Proverbs there are different kinds of fools that Solomon addresses. This is the wicked fool. This is the hardened fool. This is the one who is so convinced in their position, so hardened against other positions that they are willing to ridicule, tear down, and scorn another position. And God says to those, he, he is scornful. He mocks. Another way of saying it is that God mocks the mockers. He makes fun of the mockers. Um, and uh, there's, this particular proverb is quoted a couple times in the New Testament. And uh, if you see it in the New Testament, it's going to look a little bit different because they are quoting from a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And what, how it is quoted in the New Testament is, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So God is saying he is in opposition to those who are proud. He is mocking the mockers. He is scornful to the scorners. And kids, pride, you've probably heard this word. Um, hopefully you know what it means, but just to make sure, pride is that sense within ourselves that makes us think, I am right. I am the best. I am the smartest. I don't need to listen to you because I know what I am doing. And God is saying he is in opposition to those who harbor that pride. And beloved, that, this, this harsh language of God's opposition to the proud, the, the mocking of the proud may seem startling to us. It may be startling to you if you think of God as a loving, gracious, gentle God. How, how could he take such a stark uh, response? He, what we need to understand is that God hates, he hates pride. Because pride sets itself against who God is. God doesn't, and when he sees pride, when he sees mocking against his holiness, against his sovereignty, against his power, he doesn't fret. He doesn't wring his hands like, why, why are these people doing this? He mocks 
their foolishness. He holds them in derision, and this might tweak your view of who God is, but this is what Scripture declares, that God is holy and just. And we see this again in the Psalms. Psalm chapter 2 tells us a, a similar picture. Listen to this language. Psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and let's cast away their cords for, from us. It says, He who sits in, hev- in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God holds those in derision. He doesn't fret. And beloved, that ought to bring us to our knees. In humility, there is, there is something, he says, I will terrify them in my fury, terrify them in my wrath. It is a dreadful thing to kindle the wrath of an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God to harbor opposition against him. None can stand against him. It is terrifying. It ought to terrify us. And yet, and yet, it's not that we are without hope. Is We might recognize that pride within our hearts, but we're not without hope because the second part of this proverb gives us hope. But to the humble, he gives favor. To the humble, he gives favor. So kids, if pride is saying, I am the best, I know what's right, and hardening ourselves in stubborn opposition, humility is just the opposite. Humility is um, thinking ourselves as of less power or worth or not having all the answers of, of, of things. It's what Jesus would call the poor in spirit, those who are willing to put themselves under another. And here... God responds and he says, I'm not going to oppose them. I'm going to give my favor. The the New Testament translation says, God gives grace to the humble. And that, that is what grace is. It is God's favor. It is his undeserved, unmerited favor that he lavishes on his people. And so what he's saying is that while just as much as he would turn against in opposition to those who are proud, he will turn toward those who are humble and lavishes grace and his praise upon them. So as we consider this, we have to recognize that this humility that he that the um, that Solomon is talking about here is a humility ultimately in relationship with God Himself. We can have an outward perception of modesty. We can have a gentle and quiet spirit. We can have a self a nature of self-deprecating humor uh, that we present 
and still be warring in our hearts against God and his authority over our lives and be in stubborn opposition. What we're talking about here is a true humility before the Lord, one that results in a true humility before one another. And when we look at this, it is an either-or proposition. Either we are living in true humility before our God, or we are harboring a prideful opposition before him. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's, there's not this aspect of, well, I'm, I'm somewhat ambivalent about the Lord. Uh, you know, this is fine for you. It's, it's not fine for me. Um, I've got this healthy skepticism about what God is saying to me. Or even we could claim the name of Christ but not allow his lordship to take hold in our lives where he's, we are not submitting to his authority in our lives. In each of those cases, those are aspects of deep-seated pride and opposition against our Lord. It's an either-or uh, proposition. But true humility will be from the heart and it will bear fruit. And it's been said that... Um, you probably heard this phrase that humility is uh, not thinking less of yourselves, but thinking of yourself less. Uh, and that has a nice catchy ring to it, but I don't think that it's biblically accurate because we can think of ourselves less and yet still harbor uh, pride within our heart. I think a, a good biblical definition of humility is correctly understanding ourself in comparison to the Almighty God, and flowing out of that, uh, correctly assessing ourselves in comparison with other fellow human beings. In order to be truly humble, we have to know God as He truly is. Uh, the English Puritan John Flavel said this He said, They who know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. It's Growing in humility means growing in our knowledge of who God is, and that will drive us to humility. And as we look at ourselves, we recognize that we have no grounds for pride. John Calvin said this uh, similar type of thing. He said it's uh, even when, when understanding ourself, that even that has to flow out of our knowledge of who God is. He says, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face, and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity." So we need to know God if we are to grow in humility and to receive his favor. And what, what is delightful is that God delights in making himself known. He delights in making himself known. And there are three key ways that I think God reveals himself to us, to mankind, that we can know him. The very first, and, and they're in increasingly... Uh, increasing degrees of clarity. The very first is in creation itself. 
On the very first pages of Scripture, God is declaring himself to be creator of all things. Romans 1 makes clear that God has created creation in such a way to reveal his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. There is a beauty and a complexity and an immensity to God's creation that is sufficient for us to know this God and is sufficient to drive us to worship him. Uh, the 20th century naturalist William Beebe tells us, told this story about Teddy Roosevelt that um, Roosevelt would, uh, on occasion, they'd take his, his friend out and they would search the night sky for this particular uh, part of the sky that had a particular amount of light, and Roosevelt would say, you see that? That is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each one of them larger than our sun. And then Roosevelt would grin and he would say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Looking at the heavens, he was feeling a sense of his Smallness, And isn't that what Psalm 8 says? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. It ought to drive us to worship, marveling in his creative beauty and his uh, majesty, and then admitting our smallness in the midst of that ought to drive us to humility. So creation is one way that God reveals himself to us, that he gives us knowledge of himself. The second, even clearer, is his word. This is God's breathed out word, his self-revelatory, meaning he's revealing himself to us. Creation might be sufficient to tell us that God exists and that we ought to worship him, but we don't have clarity on his plan, his purpose that is eternal and unchangeable. We don't know about his character, his holiness, his might, his power, his sufficiency, his tenderness, his love, and his justice. We don't know without reading the pages of Scripture, his plan to save a people for himself, a people who have rebelled against him. We don't know about his mercy in extending grace to those who humble themselves before him. We don't know that he is coming again to judge all mankind and that he is a righteous judge and a holy judge but God reveals these things to us in his word. He teaches us who he is. He teaches us how we must live in response to him. He gives us his law that we might live by it. He gives us his grace. And then the most clear way that he reveals himself is by his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that long ago God revealed himself in many ways, but in these last days he has revealed himself by his son, that he is the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his being. And the father said, 
this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And it's such an identification of the Lord Jesus Christ with the invisible God that Jesus says, if you've, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen my gentleness, my love, my compassion, my self-sacrifice, you've seen me as the king of creation and the king of kings, but the judge of all the earth, you have seen me. If you've seen his mercy in laying down his life to save a people for himself, we have seen the Almighty God. And we've also been given this pattern of how we ought to live. Whereas in God's word, he tells us in the person of Jesus Christ, he shows us. He gives us the pattern and the example and says, this is the perfect man. This is the perfect God. And so God reveals himself through these three different ways. And yet, aren't there different responses? There are those who humble themselves before the Lord to hear. And there are those who set themselves up in opposition to those things. Because, yes, God reveals himself through creation. But is that what our world sees? Or is there a scientific scientistic opposition to the notion that there is a creator who created all things out of nothing. That, that the things that exist are anything more than just cosmic chance. Or God reveals himself in scripture and yet there's opposition to the fact that this ancient book has any authority on our lives. That it's relevant in any way. That it is even inerrant that it even speaks clearly. It's filled with errors. It's not God's word. It is the word of man, we hear. And even the person of Jesus Christ, from the moment that he was alive, there was opposition to God's revelation through him. He was put to death because he was hated. And since then, the memory of him and his authority, all those things have been People have sought to put those things to death. Any notion that he has authority or clarity on who God is. Beloved, the the reality is that there is opposition to each one of those things in every one of us. We are born into pride. We are born into a sin. We were born into a blindness to be able to see and hear and believe the things that God has revealed to us. And, and that's what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, you know, that God reveals himself. He speaks. But it's, these things are spiritually discerned. So even though God is gracious to pursue all mankind with his truth, we just don't hear it. The pride is so deep, it's so ingrained, we need something wholly other to intervene in us to be able to hear and see and believe. And beloved, that is what God has done for us. He has taken an even further step to humble us in Jesus Christ. And what's more, to give us his humility the Lord Jesus Christ, we just read it from Philippians chapter 2. He came, he humbled himself. He came as a servant. He was humbling himself in obedience to God. And his humility is 
counted as ours. And his humble spirit God has poured out on those whom he loves so that we would see and believe and bow the knee in humility so that in Christ Jesus, as we receive him by his spirit, we can look at creation and we can say, what is man? What am I? (laughs) That you would be mindful of me, Father. Or we could look at Scripture and say, this is, as we just confess, not the words just of man, but really is the word of God. That we must put ourselves under in humble reception and would tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who humbly went to the cross to pay the penalty for my pride. And he is my savior that I needed saving and is now my Lord that he, have, he has purchased me with his own blood. And so even the humility that we have to receive the things of God, the gifts of God, even there we have no room for boasting because it is only by grace that we have received these things through faith. And even this is a gift of God. God has given us even the humility. It's an alien humility for ourselves that we might receive the blessing that God gives to us. But beloved, this humility is everything because God delights to lavish his favor and his grace upon those who are humble. He says to the humble he gives favor, he gives grace, and it is a vast favor because the Lord Jesus Christ said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is everything. Lord Jesus said, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. So we must must pursue this humility. We must receive this humility. We must walk in this humility. And and this humility, while it, it promises true blessing and favor for all eternity, there is blessing and favor even now. Even now. It it. It is from the heart, it bears fruit, and that fruit brings blessing. And I've got four different ways that Scripture tells us that this humility works in us and then produces that blessing. True humility makes us teachable. It makes us willing to listen. And so true humility, in humility we grow in obedience and submission to God's will. It The Lord Jesus Christ said, he prayed, not my will, but your will, Father. And he taught us to pray, which we'll pray in just a moment, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a humble reception that God is God and we must obey and submit ourselves to it. And it seeks God's will over our own and through that humility, God tears down the walls of pride, brick by brick, as we pursue that humility. But there's blessing. We just sang this from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That blessing begins even as we submit ourselves to it. So it makes it teachable, but it also makes us correctable. Pride tells us, we never say, 
I was wrong. But humility tells us we are prone to being wrong. We need to be corrected. We need to be rebuked. And in repentance, we can cry out, have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. You know, if you, if, if you are perfect, you don't need mercy. You don't need forgiveness. But blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Beloved, that forgiveness comes as we repent in humility, casting ourselves at the foot of the throne of grace. It makes us correctable. It also makes us dependent. We recognize that we are not self-sufficient, and so we grow in trust. So a fruit of humility is trust in someone other than ourselves. And the only one to truly trust is the only trustworthy one, which is God himself. Every word of God is trustworthy and true. And he proved his faithfulness by raising Christ Jesus from the dead. And so we, as we hear his word, as we look to Christ, we trust it with all of our heart. We build our confidence on it. And Psalm 40 says, blessed is the man who makes God his trust. God blesses us as we trust in him. And fourth, beloved, is humility teaches us that we are undeserving. We are not deserving. And that heart teaches us to praise and wonder at the majesty and love of our God. And that's throughout the Psalms, beloved, this heart of, oh, come magnify the Lord with me. He, is, he has put a new song in my heart. He has filled me with joy forever and ever. And beloved, that joy, that praise comes from a heart that recognizes that we don't deserve any of it. And yet God in his grace lavishes it because he is a God of Bountiful grace to you and to me. The humble hears of God's salvation and is glad, and that gladness turns to praise. And so that fruit overflows to blessing. Well, beloved, the last thing we want to point out is that there is an inevitability of humility, an inevitability. We read this in, in Philippians chapter 2. But in in Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes clear that God has raised Jesus to the heavenly places and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is a point in time where every person ever created will bow the knee to Christ. And, And our God, in his mercy and his grace, speaks to you now and says, humble yourself. Humble yourself before me that I might lavish my praise or my grace and my favor upon you that you might receive my my blessings now and forevermore. But for those who are stubborn and in opposition, he laughs and they will bow the knee, but not in simple humility, but in utter and eternal humiliation. And so, beloved, if you, have not, if you have not humbled yourself before 
the one true and living God, the God who is an all-consuming fire and yet merciful and gracious and gentle, I urge you as God's ambassador, be reconciled to God. Humble yourself before him that he might lavish his love and his grace upon you. Beloved, the, the heart of humility does well up into a desire to give praise and adoration to our God. And that, that is seen evident in the life of the inventor Sam, Samuel Morse, uh, the man who invented the telegraph and was the co-inventor of Morse code, uh, which you may be familiar with. Um, and he was asked once, um, have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know what to do? And his answer was, well, more than once, and whenever I could not see the way clearly, I knelt down and prayed to God for light and for understanding. And he received, of course, many honors for his invention of the telegraph, but he, uh, in humility, found those himself undeserving. And he said this, he said, I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal to someone, and he was pleased to reveal it to me. And beloved, God was pleased to reveal his love and his grace of his son Jesus Christ to you. It is a gift of your salvation if you would humble yourself before him and walk in it. He takes great delight in the tenderness of a humble heart because it gives him glory. And so, beloved, let us humble ourselves before him in love and adoration that he might take great delight in us and he might lavish upon us his favor and his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we marvel at your wondrous grace to us. We marvel at your majesty and your might. And who are we that we should be recipients of your grace? Would you help us to receive the gifts that you have extended to us with meekness and humility? Help us to walk in them before you in submission and obedience and in praise and worship. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.